Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the History of Skipton with me, Ian Lockwood, author of the book, The History of Skipton. Our last episodes have looked at the rise and fall of the cotton industry and the mills in Skipton. The next couple will look a little more closely at the people who worked in them. And today we look at one of the biggest events in the history of the town, the plug drawing riots. Britain, in the first years of the reign of Victoria, was a most unhappy country. The hungry forties were aptly named. Bad weather, poor harvests and economic turbulence meant that life was a struggle. Little wonder, therefore, that the country seemed on the brink of revolution. Indeed, across Europe, 1848 was a year of revolution in France, Austria, the German states, the Italian states... But somehow, it never quite happened in Britain. But there were many who feared that it would. In 1838, the year after Victoria came to the throne, the People's Charter was drawn up. A series of six main aims, all of them political, such as a vote for every man, secret ballots and annual elections. Those who subscribed to its ideals were known as Chartists, and the movement gained mass support. A petition signed, it was claimed by more than three million, was presented to and ignored by Parliament in May 1842. But the main worry of working families was not the right to cast a vote in secret every year for an MP, but the need for food. As agricultural labour was in the doldrums, families were flocking to the towns as the Industrial Revolution was in full throttle. Work in the new factories was long, hard and tedious, but it did keep you and your family alive. That is why the working man and woman feared nothing more than new technology which allowed one machine to do the work of several employees. In practice, these technological advances in the mills of northern England soon led to greatly increased output and greater, not lesser, employment in the shape of more mills and larger factories. But the workers were not to know that at the time, and the initial advent of these new machines caused great fear and short-term unemployment. During the Napoleonic Wars, the first signs of protest against mechanisation were evident in the Luddite movement, so-called because the workers hid their involvement behind the leadership of a fictitious Captain Ned Ludd. 
The Luddite movement was battered into submission by 1820. But in 1842, as the economic climate deteriorated, concerns about job losses caused by technological advances caused the outbreak of trouble in East Lancashire and notably in Combe. The protest took the form of pulling the plugs out of boilers to cut off the steam power used by the new machines and for that reason they were known as the plug drawing riots. They were also commonly known at the time as turnout riots as the protesters demanded that the mill employees down tools and turn out with the protest. As we've stated, in August 1842, Skipton had three mills, the Sidgwick's High and Low Mill and Dewhurst Bellevue Mill. News of the Lancashire protests must have been the talk of Skipton, and intelligence that the mob was about to march upon the town reached the ears of the local magistrates. Skipton was particularly ill-prepared for widespread disorder on a large scale, its policing at that time being in the hands of Tommy Laycock, the parish constable, who was knocking on in years and whose experience was limited to mundane tasks, such as rounding up the wayward pig in the town streets or locking up the odd drunk. So, when the town heard that a mob was about to descend, the alarmed magistrates swore in as many special constables as they could find. Tradesmen, shopkeepers, trusted artisans and foremen. They wanted to do whatever they could to prevent mayhem and they braced themselves from trouble. On August the 16th, 1842, a mob of 3,000 arrived from Colne along the Broughton Road and two magistrates, Hastings Ingham and Thomas Birkbeck, rode out to meet them. The rioters were a sorry-looking sight. Their economic woes were evident from the many rags they wore. They were ill-fed and dirty, but they were also menacing. Large numbers carried clubs or sticks, and a few bore more sinister weapons, such as billhooks or metal poles. The magistrates told the rioters that the townspeople were greatly frightened and urged them not to cause trouble for innocent townsfolk and stay away from shops and houses. If there was no clear leader, one man, a 46-year-old called William Smith, was definitely among those who spoke for the mob. He and his fellow ringleaders made it plain that they fully intended to bring textile production in the town to a halt. The two magistrates were powerless to prevent the overwhelming numbers of the rioters, but they had already sent out messengers for military assistance, and shortly afterwards, a company of soldiers from the 61st Regiment and a body of cavalrymen from the 11th Hussars arrived in the town from York to ratchet up the tension. The first mill the mob reached was Dewhurst Bellevue Mills, and they duly disabled the boiler and ordered out the workers. The reaction of the Skipton workers is not known. It seems likely that some form of workers' solidarity would have elicited sympathy for the cause, and surely the same fears which sparked the mob to march from Colne to Skipton 
would have been in the minds of the Skipton workforce. However, there is no record of local folk joining the protest, which then proceeded to Sidgwick's two mills to repeat their destruction and threats. By now, the soldiers were in place, and Matthew Wilson, another magistrate, and the father of the Sir Matthew Wilson, whose statue now adorns the High Street, read the riot act on the steps of the town hall in Sheep Street. The riot act of 1715 was introduced as a measure for preventing tumults and riotous assemblies and for the more speedy and effectual punishing of the rioters. This is how it worked. Local officials made a proclamation ordering the dispersal of any group larger than 12 men who they deemed had gathered for riotous purposes. Failure to do so within an hour was punishable by death. Sir Matthew Wilson accordingly shouted out the required words, not just on the town hall steps, but at other points in the town. Our sovereign lord the king chargeth and commandeth all persons being assembled immediately to disperse themselves and peaceably to depart to their habitations or to their lawful business upon the pains contained in the act made in the first year of King George for preventing tumults and riotous assemblies. God save the Queen. There was little response, although the rioters did withdraw to a field called Anna Hills in the area now covered by the Morrison's petrol station. Along the way, a number of the starving horde ransacked a few shops and houses, demanding food and money from the terrified traders and householders. One businessman, called John Settle, was accused of sympathy with the rioters. It is said that he had provided beer for the mob at Anna Hills, and carts to carry the food and provisions they had extorted from the Skiptonians. He also pointed out that this was a good place for them to camp for the approaching night. But rather than being in league with the mob, it's more likely that Settle showed remarkable cunning. He was keen to draw them out of the town, where they were getting up to mischief, and on to a wide open field, where they could be more easily attacked by soldiers than in the streets. Hastingsingham followed the crowd to Anna Hills on horseback and again read out the riot act, but the crowd had turned ugly. They had withdrawn from the town and it seemed they were ready to settle down for the night and here was a local bigwig threatening them. At some point, the military decided to end their standoff and observation from the sideline and they assembled and charged the mob. Maybe they saw that Ingham and the local constables were about to be attacked. Maybe it had already been agreed that the mob had had their requisite hour to disperse. Either way, they fixed bayonets and charged. Other than a few stones lobbed in defiance, the mob quickly fled. Most of them ran down a lane which led to Carlton and headed back home to the mill towns of East Lancashire. There were remarkably few casualties, but among them was one of the magistrates 
James Braithwaite Garforth from Coniston, who was set upon with sticks and severely beaten about the head. He lost an eye and several teeth. A hussar also was hit in the face and suffered injuries. And although W.H. Dawson in his 1882 History of Skipton, says he died afterwards, contemporary reports and the subsequent trial of the rioters makes no reference to this. The soldiers appeared to have shown remarkable constraint. In contrast, the Peterloo Massacre, 23 years to the very day previously, resulted in the death of 15 people when armed troops charged a protesting crowd in Manchester. There are no reports of serious injuries to the rioters, but in truth, the authorities would not have been too concerned about recording these. A small number of prisoners were captured, either on the field or in the town itself. Among them was William Smith, who had spoken for them earlier. They were taken to the Devonshire Hotel for examination by the magistrates, held overnight, and the next morning packed into a coach and sent under armed escort to York Castle to await trial. Captain Jones, in charge of the soldiers, took them to Colne as soon as the dispersal of the mob had been confirmed. He was replaced by a detachment of the 73rd Regiment under a Captain Widdington, whose troops were put up in temporary barracks erected in the castle grounds. For several nights, the special constables and the magistrates paraded round the streets to make sure all was calm. Particularly suspicious were travellers putting up at lodging houses who were likely to be hauled out of bed and closely questioned. Soon after the riot had taken place, a group of between 30 and 40 mischievous young men from Skipton decided to imitate the Lancastrian mill workers and went on an extended pub crawl to Grassington, demanding money, food and beer from villages along the way. In some places, a determined farmer with a firearm turned them away, but they did get away with goods from several homes and free beer with menaces from the pubs, before news of the disturbance got back to Skipton. A sort of posse was gathered and headed north to confront the troublemakers, who, as soon as they spotted the forces of the law, fled in all directions. No one appears to have been brought to justice for this act. This excitement apart, the Skipton mills were quickly back in production and normality returned to the town. The court system operated more swiftly in the 19th century than these days and just three weeks after Skipton's plug-drawing riot, William Smith appeared before Justice Maul at York Assizes. With him in the dock were brothers John and William Spencer, aged 50 and 47 respectively, John Harland, 38, Edward Hay, 32, and James Dakin, 27. They were all charged with having at Skipton, with force and arms, 
together with diverse other evil-disposed persons, unlawfully and riotously assembled and gathered to disturb the public peace, and then and there made a great noise, riot and disturbance to the terror of the Queen's subjects. The prosecution outlined the case against the men, but accepted they had no evidence against Harland and Hay, who were both released. The trial was extensively reported in the newspapers. The soberly measured Leeds Intelligencer and the much more sensational Leeds Mercury, which had started its report of the disturbances in Skipton, published in August 20th, in strident terms. Our columns are filled with particulars of the strangest and wildest holiday insurrection that has ever been attempted, an insurrection conducted in the name of peace, law and order, an insurrection the most extensive, yet in some respects the most harmless, known in the history of modern England, an insurrection more foolish than wicked. Among the witnesses for the prosecution were the mill-owning brothers Christopher and John Sidgwick. They told how, at High Mill in the Castle Woods, Smith had confronted John and handed tools to a boy, instructing him to pull the plug out of the boiler, releasing the water. He had then demanded a sovereign from Sidgwick as the going rate for withdrawing his men. The Sidgwicks were told that the mills would remain shut until delegates attending a meeting in Manchester had determined the rates of wages which the employers must pay to the mill workers. Spencer, the court was told, was also to the fore among the mob's leaders and had been heard telling the men to stand firm when soldiers were brought out. He had also been spotted throwing stones in Skipton Marketplace and in the lane at Anna Hills. Dakin was another who was apprehended for throwing stones at the military. Smith, Harland and Dakin were defended by a Mr Bliss, who tried to soothe the fears that the disturbances in Skipton were part of a national organised revolution. He said the jury should not be led astray by talking in papers that this was the beginning of a dangerous sedition. He tried to incur the jury's sympathy for a mob of 3,000 near starvation and begging bread en route to Skipton. No damage to property, other than the drawing of the mill plugs, had taken place, said Mr Bliss. Indeed, Smith deserved credit for keeping the mob in order and instructing them not to harm the common townsfolk and traders. Now the prosecution nor defence, made any mention of the other accounts that the crowd had extorted food, money and drink from Skiptonians, other than that one sovereign demanded from John Sidgwick at High Mill. Smith, according to Mr Bliss, was a calming influence, and if the mill workers of Skipton had been prevented from returning to their posts, then it was due to busy demagogues and factious journalists who had encouraged acts which had the baseness to instigate, but not the courage to participate in. The Spencer brothers were asked if they had anything to say. 
John Spencer simply said he did nothing and never threw a stone. William Spencer was more forthcoming and, and insisted that he was at the place, Anna Hills, by accident. That he saw stones being thrown, but he urged the crowd to stop and then the soldiers would not hurt them. He finished by asking the jury to remember that he had a wife and eight children and had never been in any trouble. Justice Maul, in his summing up, issued what amounted to an instruction to convict the men. Uh, this was not unreasonable, as the defendant's participation and role in the plug-drawing riots was not contested. The judge emphasised, however, the attack on the established order. He poured scorn on the rioters' statement that the mills could resume work once instructions had been received from a meeting of delegates 50 miles away. That would be an end of government, except for a self-appointed one in Manchester, he scoffed. While the Spencers and Dacre might claim that they had not taken part in any riot, any person who had joined a mob committing illegal acts was, by his very presence, rendered responsible for their actions. He hoped that it would not come to pass that law-abiding people going peaceful about their business were at the mercy of a mob. The judge's sentiments were fairly typical of the establishment. After retiring for half an hour, the jury found all the defendants guilty, but said that the Spencers were less culpable than the others. The sentence was by the standards of the time, relatively lenient. Judge Maul said that their actions had cost thousands of pounds, but not brought a single gain for anyone. They could count themselves lucky not to be facing a charge of high treason, which was punishable by death, as the conduct of some of them would have justified. He also pointed out that they had demanded and received a sovereign from Mr Sidgwick, and in a recent case in London, a poor man had asked for relief and got half a crown and was afterwards charged with robbery and hung. But he was going to be more forgiving. Smith he sentenced to 12 months imprisonment with hard labour, the other four to six months of hard labour. Two weeks after the trial, the Skipton magistrates issued warrants for the arrest of John Hodgson, 35, and John Greenwood, 34, both of them from Barn Oldswick. It seems that this was in response to threats made against Ingham, who lived in Barn Oldswick, and resulted as revenge for Ingham's part in quashing the riots and the subsequent jailing of the defendants. The men were arrested early in the morning, presumably by magistrates, although it is not clear if the military was still in Skipton and gave their support. The two men, Hodgson and Greenwood, were brought to Skipton Town Hall and committed to York for trial, where they appeared at the next assizes in March of 1843. They were charged with riot 
and with them in the dock was Hartley Stansfield, the 25-year-old who was additionally charged with the assault on the unfortunate magistrate Garforth, who you may remember had lost an eye and teeth in the Battle of Anna Hills, as it was known locally. Mr Pashley, defending Stansfield, said that there was no evidence at all linking him to the attack on Magistrate Garforth, and two character witnesses testified that the defendant was a peaceful man who had never been in trouble before. Stansfield was found not guilty of the assault, but verdicts of guilty of riot were returned against all three. Greenwood and Hodgson, who had been in custody in York Castle since September the 10th, were sentenced to one month's hard labour. Stansfield, who had been on bail, got four months. These are remarkably lenient sentences. A mob of 3,000 had descended on Skipton, demanding money, food and damaging property. So it seems somewhat odd to me that they were treated fairly leniently. And perhaps it suggests that there was a, a lack of real hard evidence against any of the defendants. However, despite that observation... This was a significant episode in Skipton's history, and one which was passed down from generation to generation, although now it's slipping from memory. So next time you fill up your car at Morrison's or even at Tesco's, which is just by it, you may just want to remember the Battle of Anna Hills and the Plug Drawing Riots of 1842. Do join me next time for the next episode in the history of Skipton when we'll be looking at disputes in the cotton mills. And until then, thank you for listening. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.